It's great to be here with you this morning. Uh, whether you're here on our Canandaigua campus, part of our online campus, Hopewell campus, it is great to be able to continue in our series, Kingdom Living Volume 1. Uh, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount recorded for us in Matthew 5 through 7. And uh, I want to begin this week by, by sharing a hermeneutical principle. Now, what, what is that? A hermeneutics are the way that we study literature. Um, biblical hermeneutics have some things that are unique to it. Um, but this is like a key hermeneutical principle, no matter what piece of literature you may be studying. But as we talk to the Bible, it's, 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 it's equally as important, if not more so because it's God's word. But it's that context is king. Context is king. Say it with me. Context is king. Uh, it, it's way easy to, to, to look at the scriptures, take a verse out of context, and, and let it misrepresent, if you will, um, what it was intended to, to be there for. And so context is king. And so when we look at scripture, we want to know, you know, where is it within the passage? Where is it within the book? Where is that book within the Testaments? And, and, and so forth. Is it a gospel? Is it a, one of Paul's letters? Is it a historical book? And, and so where are we in context to the Sermon on the Mount? Well, we started by looking at characteristics of Christ's disciples. We, we call it uh, the Beatitudes, and Christ shares that. Remember, Christ takes the posture of a teacher. He's sitting as he's preaching this message, so it's pretty fitting I'm sitting today, even though I'm not equating myself to him. But, he, but he's sitting as he's sharing this message, and, and he starts by saying, these are the characteristics of a follower of Christ, not a characteristics of different followers, but the characteristics of his followers. He then talks about how his followers would be salt and light into the world, leading into this discussion on the righteousness of a believer, to which last week we looked at our righteousness comes from Jesus, that Jesus is 100% righteous, and, and righteousness means rightness. It, it, it means that he's 100% he's good, and he's 100% right, and, and that when we come and receive Christ as, as Savior and Lord of our life, that we're clothed in Christ's righteousness, and when God looks at us, he sees us through the lens of Christ. And therefore, he sees us as righteous. And so that's who we are in Christ. You remember when we started looking at the Sermon on the Mount, we said that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about what his followers, what they are to be and do. And so we look at the being, we are righteous in Christ. In the doing part, how many of you have, have come to realize that it's a struggle sometimes to do the right thing? And so this is where Jesus is going to take us into what it looks like to actually live out of this righteousness that we have in Christ. He addresses two problems as we look at the, the narrow context of the passage we're going to look at this morning. He addresses two problems. The first is that those who listened to him had heard different things from the Old Testament, but not all had been taught correctly. And so Jesus is going to correct some wrong understanding of the Old Testament. The second thing is that there were those who had, a limited, uh, who had limited the Old Testament commandments to external action. And you might have heard this type of thing, that the Old Testament talks about our, our, external, our external things that we do, and the New Testament talks about the internal, the heart, and the spirit. And, and let me tell you, that's only half true, because both Testaments teach both. That, that, that we're accountable for external actions, but that, that it really does matter, the condition of our souls. And so Jesus is going to reveal the true intention of the laws, we look at the Old Testament, as regards to the heart. And so with that context, let's jump into our passage. Matthew 5, we're going to be looking at 21 through 30. We'll start with the first couple of verses. 
And Jesus is preaching, and he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, how many of you think that's a pretty straightforward uh, passage? Uh, Pretty direct, isn't it? Jesus really brings out the deeper meaning of the Old Testament command against murder. And, And what is Christ really teaching? Well, not only is the act of murder forbidden, but the angry spirit that leads to it is wrong. The angry spirit that leads to murder. Jesus is not saying, by the way, that, that it, it, you know, an angry person might as well just murder somebody. Okay, he's not saying that. He's just saying that, that the anger that led to that is sin as well. In fact, Jesus talks about the council or the court and, and God's judgment. And, and what he's really referring to is while human courts punish obvious crimes, murder, God judges the hidden sins. He knows our heart. He knows who we are on the inside. And so we may be able to fool those other people, if you will, but we can never fool God. He knows who we are. That's why I always say, you know, you can't fool God, so you might as well just be honest with him. (laughs) Just be honest with him. Let let him do a work in you. And and so listen to this verse from the Old Testament. I point that out because of the misunderstanding they had of the Old Testament. Proverbs 16, 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. So in the Old Testament, it says, you know, that, that, that we can justify almost anything. Ever been there? We can justify almost anything, but God does, is concerned about who we are on the inside. He's concerned about our heart, our spirit, our soul. And, and Christ shares really this, this interesting phrase in connection to all of this. Maybe you caught it. Whoever says you fool will be li- liable to the hell of fire. I mean, that's, pretty, that's, pretty, that's a pretty hard statement. How many of you think that may be a hard statement? What's Jesus talking about here? He's talking about God's role in ours. He's not saying, by the way, we shouldn't judge the actions of others. Uh, We should keep each other accountable. We know that, right, church? Come on, it's a whole other message if we don't know that. We should keep each other accountable, right, church? There we go. We should keep each other accountable. He's not talking about that, but he is talking about being divine judge, playing the role of God. And he's saying, let God be God. Because if you want to be God, then, then you're going to find yourself in a bad place. You let God be God. And, and, and so he's talking about anger, and anger that can lead to murder, and, and that we can even murder people with our words. And, and, and our inner spirit can have such anger that, that it can be sin. But, but I, want to, I want to give this special note. Not all anger is evil. We've got to understand that too. Not all anger is evil. In fact, we, we read in Scripture about God's wrath, and yet he's holy and pure. And so God gets angry, and yet he, he's not sinning. There's such a thing as righteous anger. Righteous anger. But catch this, though. Righteous anger is slow to rise and quick to die down. Do you hear that? So if you have an anger in you that, that just like boils up, and it's, it's, it's like rage anger, that's probably not righteous anger. Righteous anger is slow to rise and quick to die down. In fact, Paul writing to the Ephesian church, Ephesians 4.26, he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Be angry, but do not sin. Not all, not all sin is anger. Jesus was angered by sin. Jesus was angered by sin. And, and, and it's proper to be angry at sin, but, but not people, not the sinner. 
Jesus was angry at sin because sin devastates people. Sin, sin wrecks people's lives. Sin separates us from God. Think of it this way. Be friendly to the person, but hostile to the sin. Friendly to the person, but hostile to the sin. And sometimes, dare I say, churches, I'm not saying crosswinds, churches just get a bad rap because sometimes, sometimes the image that people outside the walls get of our buildings is a bunch of people in here just mad at people. And we should be friendly toward people, but angry at the sin that keeps them from God. Angry at the sin that robs them from the life that God wants for them, the joy-filled life. We need to be careful that our anger doesn't lead us to sin. And even righteous anger can lead us to sin. If it turns into bitterness or vengefulness. One of the habits I have, and I've shared this before, so some of you already know, I pray using the Lord's Prayer as sort of a, as an outline, and, and, and part of the Lord's Prayer says, you know, Father, forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors. And when I talk about forgiving my debtors, I, I, I often in my prayer time will say, Lord, would you examine me and just see if there's even the smallest root of bitterness in me that we can pluck it out? Because I don't want that thing to fester and to become something more. I, I don't want it to, to lead me down a road I don't want to go. So keep in mind this, that, that, that Satan would take advantage of our anger but the Holy Spirit gives us the power to rise above it. And, and I got to camp here just for a minute. I don't want to go down a rabbit trail, but it's so important because I think our culture has this impression that like we have the Holy Spirit on one shoulder and, and, and the devil on the other. Maybe it's the opposite. I don't know. But, but, and they're both like speaking at us and they're like equal. And, and let me tell you something. No one's equal with God. Like God's all powerful and Satan's not close to him in power. But that's not to say he doesn't have any. He has all the power we're willing to give him. The scripture says, if we resist the devil, he must flee. Say it with me. If we resist the devil, he must. But to resist him, we've got to turn to Jesus and let his power work in us. See, Satan would take advantage of our anger. He would take us in places that aren't healthy for us or anyone else. The Holy Spirit can give us the power to rise above it. I've had people say to me, you know, Craig, I, I just don't have the strength to forgive. I don't have the power to forgive. And I say, in and of yourself, you probably don't. But God has more than enough power to give you a forgiving spirit. More than enough power to heal your hurts. It may not be an easy journey, but he can do it. If God promises something, he can do it. Right, church? And, and so we, we need to understand Satan will take advantage of our anger, but the Holy Spirit will give us power to rise above it. What Christ is really talking about here is unrighteous anger. And unrighteous anger comes from pride and vanity and hatred and malice and revenge. Yes, Jesus was angry at sin, but remember, again, go back. He, he didn't retaliate when personally offended. Look at this verse, Luke 23, first part of verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, we started by looking at this. A context is king. Context is king. Let's do it again. I know you got it. I know you got it. Context is king. king. What's the context of Jesus saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. He's hanging on the cross. He's hanging on the cross. And, and he's, he's saying it in the presence of people who actually nailed him there. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're, what they're doing. It, it, it's interesting that, that Jesus had all the power to avoid the cross had he desired to do so. But he doesn't because he loves us so much. He died for our sins. And he had all the power to, to, to really, uh, to get vengeance, to, to get revenge for them putting him up there. In fact, he, the scripture tells us if he wanted to, he could have called legions of angels. He could have simply said, you know what, God, I'm tired of this, sick him. 
Sick them. And, and I, just for a minute, think of yourself without the Holy Spirit. What would you have chosen? And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. There's been times in my life where I found that quite challenging because I realized, God, I think they knew what they were doing. But the reality is they don't because if they knew the real truth, things probably would have looked a little different. Father, forgive them. They know what they're doing. We should be angry at what angers God, but show love to those who he loves, which is everybody. <laughs> show love to those he loves, which is everybody. I can remember a mentor of mine, that was years ago, I was in high school, and I was having a problem with a particular individual who, by the way, wasn't treating me right. I think he knew what he was doing, you know? And, and, and my friend said, start praying for him. I thought, pray for him? I want to wring his neck. You know, you need to pray for me. You know, anyone ever been there? You're looking at me like you've never been there. And he challenged me. He said, start praying for him. I said, all right, I'll do it. I started praying for him. And then one day, I was in a group of, of, of friends, and they started talking bad about this person. And I, and I defended him. Have you ever been surprised by what God has done in your life? Like, the words came out of my mouth, and I thought, who just said that? You know, and I realized that by praying for this individual... I'd, I'd found a love for them. Now, by the way, I didn't like them much. I still didn't want to hang around them a whole lot. Come on now. But I found a love for them. And, and it was because that's what the Lord does when we follow his path instead of our own. He gives us a love for others. And, 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 and you may be asking yourself, well, well, how do I deal with bitterness? How do I deal with, with individuals who are holding something against me? And, and, and Jesus shares in his sermon in Matthew 5, 23 through 26. Listen to what he says. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you're put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So Jesus shares two examples here. And I want you to remember that word example. Okay, he shares two examples here. The first one, many of us may be familiar with. He says, the guy's going to, to the temple. He's getting ready to offer up a, a sacrifice, an offering. But before he does, the, the God reminds him of someone who's holding something against him. And so before he offers up this offering, what does he do? He goes and makes restitution. He goes and, he goes and tries to reconcile with this individual. Then he comes back and does the offering. Jesus says, there's a second example. These two people are heading off to court and they're, they're walking with each other. And he says, before you even get to court, why don't you deal with it amongst yourselves? Why don't you reconcile with each other right there on the spot? And, and, and I said, remember the word examples because these are examples. They're descriptive, not prescriptive. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Jesus is describing what forgiveness looks like. He isn't saying this is the path you take every time. I've heard people misuse this verse and say, if you're in a worship service and all of a sudden God has you remi remember somebody who's holding something against you, get out of church, go find them and, and, and reconcile. And I'm saying, Jesus isn't really saying that. And by the way, you could be driving all around town when you actually could be in a, a service having your heart filled. So that's not what he's saying. In, in our culture, even court's a little different. You usually don't go to court alongside the person who, who you're having issues with. And in many cases, if you went and said, hey, let's, let's make this right, the person will say, well, okay, talk to my lawyer. 
And so I'm reminded of Paul's words when he's talking about living at peace with each other. He says, as long as it's in your power to do it, live at peace with one another. Now, why does he write it that way? Because we can't compromise God's word in order to live with peace with people. There would be those who would say, you know what? I would rather Craig didn't talk about that this morning. <laughs> All of you, maybe. I don't know. But I would rather God, but, but, but the reality of it is it's in God's word, so we're going to look at it, right? So I, I can't do that. But as long as it's in my power to, I'll live at peace with you. I, I can desire to have restitution and, and, and to be made right with each other, and we're, we're fine. But you may not choose that. So I can't force you. I can't say, oh, yeah, we're going to be okay, right? That's a whole other issue. As long as it's in my power. And Jesus isn't giving us a prescription. He isn't saying, this is the way you have to do it. What he's doing is he's giving us a principle through these examples, these descriptions. And what's the principle? If we're to obey the moral law of God, we we must not only avoid the negatives, we must pursue the positives by living reconciled lives. John Stott summarizes this a bit when he writes, he says, if you want to avoid committing murder in God's sight, we must take every positive step, every possible positive step to live at peace and love with others. Do you remember Jesus is asked, what, what's the greatest commandment? And he sums it up, right? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He says, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I'm just going to throw this out to you. It's difficult to kill someone you're loving. If you do, there's something wrong, Right? Uh, but, but, but a person who's sort of in a right mind, if they're loving someone, if they want to do a loving act, murder is not part of it. Are we on the same page? I'm getting really scared here, getting quiet on that one. I want to make sure we're all on the same page on that one, okay? And, and so if we're seeking to love God, and, and God's love is filling us, then we will learn to love others. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, being in the right frame of mind, let, let God do a work on our inside that impacts the way that we live. So Jesus continues. Look at verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it said, you shall not commit adultery. Yeah, we're going there this morning. Jesus went there first. You've heard it said that you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Like that with murder, Jesus reveals that the fullest meaning of the command against adultery begins in the heart. And our culture wasn't, isn't much different than Jesus's. See, it's all too easy to narrowly define sexual sin and conveniently broaden the definition of sexual purity. In other words, to try to justify things that we do as if they're not a big deal. And in God's word, they say they, it says they are. Not only is the act of adultery forbidden, but the lust that leads to it is wrong. We can commit murder, Jesus says, with our words, and we can commit adultery in our hearts and minds. Adultery is a sin, but so is our inner lust, is what Jesus is talking about. And and there's a difference, I just want to make this clear, there's a difference between looking and lusting, there's a difference between glancing and gazing. I want to to clarify this a bit in a few ways. First of all, when I was in high school, I lived 10 minutes from the beach, and so often our youth group would go to the beach. And our pastor would, would, a lot of times, our student pastor would call us guys together, and he said, remember... It's not the first second, it's the next five that can get you in trouble. Come on now. Guys, come on. All the guys are going to just leave me hanging. You preach what you need to preach. I'm not even, I'm not even going to show that I'm listening. You know what I'm talking about. You know, and so he would say, you know, you can, a glance is one thing, don't gaze. And so, you know, we would, yeah, we made fun of it. But anyway, he was right. He was right. 
but 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 there's a reality. There's there's a reality that we can't we can't overlook. And and I'll, I'll I'll give this example. When I was in college, I was 20. I think it was my junior year. And a friend of mine named Mickey. He was uh, he was starting to date another friend of mine named Jenny. And, and Mickey came back one day. It was about five of us in my room, and he came in. And he said, "You know what? I, I'm I'm having a fantastic time dating Jenny." He goes, "You know, it, it's interesting. Since I started dating her, no other girl seems attractive to me anymore." Now the women here are going, "Oh, that's love." We called him out and said, that's a lie. Like, we did. He said, Mickey, you're lying. Like, you do find other girls attractive, and we think it's great that you're dating Jenny, but you're committed to her, but, but let's not lie. And you go, I can't believe you're saying this in church. No, I'm just being honest with you. I love my wife. My wife is beautiful. I'm committed to her. It doesn't mean I don't find other people attractive. And if I walk around acting like I don't, that can lead to some problems. Because finding someone attractive doesn't mean I'm going to do things that aren't right. And I say that to say this. I'm just going to throw it out there today. You do what you want with it. If you don't like it, go talk to Jesus about it. That's what he's bringing up in the, in the thing here. But, 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 but the reality of it is this. Opportunity doesn't lead to adultery. Compromising steps up to that opportunity leads to adultery. Come on, church. It's not the opportunity. It's every step that, that a person has made up to that opportunity that they've compromised that leads to adultery. And so when I admit that I, yeah, I, I find other people attractive, it doesn't mean that I'm allowing myself to compromise my commitment to Krista, my wife, or my commitment to God. I want to watch what I watch. Right, church? Society will tell you there's nothing wrong with pornography. The Bible tells you it'll destroy you. Now, I don't know about you, but I have found that God knows better than society. Adultery will destroy your marriage. It will destroy the way you look at, at men or women. It will dest destroy it. It will destroy it. And so Jesus is talking to me. He said, look, if you're, if you're thinking about these, think about it this way. Deeds of shame, deeds of shame are preceded by fantasies of shame. That's why so much in Scripture talks about having our heart and mind guarded making sure we're careful, understanding the devastation when we're not. I had a friend years ago now, he was having a problem with pornography, and so he did something quite radical. He put a program on his computer that every month sent to me every search that he made. Every search he made on his computer. It went through this company, the company would go through it. If there were any red flags, it went to me. Once a month over the phone, we would have a conversation. And I would ask him, I'd say, hey, they flagged a few things here. What were you looking at? And sometimes he'd say, well, this is what that was. And sometimes they were wrong, and it was a good sight. A couple times he said, Craig, I have to admit, I blew it. And I said, what are you going to do about it? Can I pray with you? He said, why are you sharing that? Because as awkward as it sounds that he would do something like that, that he would actually give me the opportunity to see what he was looking at, how much more awkward if he hadn't? He was married. He wanted to protect his marriage. He was, he, was, he was a man of God. He wanted to protect his mind. He wanted to honor the Lord. You know, the reality is we, we, we've got to make a decision. How serious are we about being in love with Jesus and others? And if we're serious about that, we may do some things that seem a little radical to those around us in order to do that. Some of us need to put our computer where everyone else can see the computer and what we're watching. You say, well, I live alone. Maybe you shouldn't have a computer at your house if you can't deal with it. You say, who are you to tell me? I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just throwing some opportunities out there for you. 
It's that important, right? Maybe, 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 maybe <laughs> I'm going to get myself in trouble this morning. Okay. Let's just say, maybe you cancel your cable subscription, your Netflix account if you have to. You say, well, I don't have to do that. I'm fine. Good. Praise God. You know? But what steps are you willing to take to keep yourself pure? What steps are you willing to take to, 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 to live the life that God calls us to? Because when God invites us into holiness, I, I find that sometimes in the church, we think that it's just an obligation, but it's not. It's an opportunity, isn't it? Do you know what I mean by holiness? It means becoming like Jesus in, in, in his character and his love and his priorities and his purpose. And he doesn't invite us in it and say, because I just want to see you struggle. Right? It's not just an obligation. It's an opportunity. I believe what this says. There's a way that, that, that leads to destruction. Christ's way leads to life in the fullest. It's It's hope. It's hope. We receive it sometimes as, as, as condemnation. We receive it sometimes as, 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 as if it's too much for us to bear. And Jesus says, no, no, my yoke is easy. Put my yoke upon you. Let's do this together. And there's going to be times where we struggle, but, but we're doing it with Jesus, and that makes all the difference. Just like with anger, when a person will say, I don't have the strength to forgive that person. No, in of yourself you don't, but you have the Spirit of God in you, and he can give you the ability to overcome. How many of you believe that? When I doubt it, I just remind myself God spoke the world into existence, and I go, come on, Craig, he can deal with this. Right? The God who spoke, to, he can deal with this. He can give me what I need. So Jesus urges us to discipline thoughts and, and, and that, we will, that we will turn to him. Well, how do we deal with sin? Well, look at the rest of our passage, remaining two verses, Matthew 5, 29 through 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. <laughs> That's a hard one just to read over, isn't it? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right eye, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Tough verse, passage here. Anybody? Okay, yeah. Okay. Context is king. That's one we looked at, right? That's, that's, that's one. There's another hermeneutical principle. What is the style of writing or speech someone's using in Scripture? You realize there's different styles, right? Like, like I've said before, you know, I, I love my wife, but I also love a Big Mac. But I hope you don't think that if it was between Krista or a Big Mac, I would struggle. Right? <laughs> I'm exaggerating a little bit on the, on the Big Mac, okay? Just a little bit. Just struggling on that one. You know, so, so, so what is Jesus doing? He's using what's called what? Hyperbole. What's hyperbole? It's an exaggeration to make a point. And everyone should go, ah. Right? He's exaggerating to make a point. What's the point, though? Sin is serious business. Sin is serious business, and we should treat it as such. But what he's not saying is the pathway to holiness is mortification, you know, plucking out your eye, cutting off your hand. And I think if you've never said amen, you can say amen on that one. He's not saying that. He, the pathway to holiness is mortification. Mortification is taking up the cross to follow Christ. It's rejecting sinful practices and making a resolution that we're, we're going to resolutely die to that sin and, and let the Spirit put it to death in us. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's exaggerating to make the point. He's just simply saying, look, sin is such a big deal. Don't deal with it lightly because it'll, it'll eat you up. 
It'll destroy you. If you're not in Christ, it leads to death. And if you're in Christ, it'll, it'll make your walk with him a havoc if you let it in. Now, thank God we, we understand. First John 1, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And everyone says, praise God. He's a forgiving God. But I love 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized us, but what is common to man. But God is faithful. Faithful. Isn't that great God's faithful? He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he's going to provide you a way to stand up under it, to victory. So we, we can live differently in the power of the Spirit. There's sometimes, though, where I have to say, Lord, don't trust me so much. <laughs> right? Don't trust me so much. Scott suggests this. Stott, Stott suggests this. John Stott. He, he writes this. He says, the believer is to behave as if you had actually plucked out your eyes and flung them away. And we're now blind so that you cannot see the objects which previously caused you to stumble. He's not telling us to do it. He's just saying, take sin so seriously that you do some of those radical things that may be necessary to avoid it. I, I have some friends who, who, are, who are recovering alcoholics, and, and they, they won't go to a bar and even sit with people and drink water. Because that's just not a situation they feel they could, they could be victorious in. And for some people, you know, that sounds weird. I think it sounds like a hero to me. Like, that's someone who cares about himself and others. How many, right? And how serious are we going to take what Jesus is talking about here? When Jesus declared that your whole body go into hell, he's talking about the final judgment. He's talking about people unrepentant. He's talking about people who hadn't received him as Lord and Savior. You say, how do you know? Because Jesus is assuming something here. And we see this often in the New Testament. Not all the time, but often. And, and the assumption is, if you're a follower of Jesus, you'll desire what Jesus wants for you. That's a pretty good assumption, although we've been around people and we've had periods in our life where we all can say we fell short of that. But that's the assumption. So he's talking about those who have yet to come to Christ and the devastation there. Here's the biblical principle. We deal with sin by getting rid of anything that causes us to sin. Whatever that stumbling block is, we want it out. We want it out of the way. I heard it this way said once, even good things in my life, if they lead me to sin, I consider an enemy. Did you catch that? It just is that important. It's just that important. Paul writes to to Colossians, Colossians 3, 5 through 6. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covenantness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So what does the believer do? The believer turns away from sin and its desires, the understanding that the wrath of God is coming. And, and, And how do we really do that? Well, we focus on the victory. If you're in Christ, I know the end of your story. It's victory. You say, how do you know? Because Jesus wrote it. I mean, inspired it. God inspired it in the Bible. Have you read the end? Like the work is is done in us. We're completed. Like we're being perfected now. But when Jesus comes and we see him face to face, the work is complete. How many of you guys think that's good news? Like there's no struggles where we're going for eternity. That's here. And the other day I caught myself because someone was asking about my phone. I said, well, better than an alternative. And, you know, we usually mean death. And then I thought to myself, that's a lie. It's not better than the alternative. Death isn't bad for a believer. Like I like life now, but if I understand the word of God, it even gets better up there. Church, come on. <laughs> come on. Like there's no thought life problems in heaven. Does that sound good? No murder? <laughs> no, 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 that's death. 
And so what do we, we focus on the victory. You say, but Craig, sometimes I, I'm defeated. Sometimes I fail. Yes, but the problem with many a believer is they focus on their failure instead of the victory God wants to provide on the other side of the failure. And they, they end up just laying there. And, and God says, I've forgiven you. Get up. Let's do this thing. Stop living as if you're condemned if you're in Christ. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, no fear of punishment. It's amazing to me how many people say, I don't want to become a Christian because I'm so afraid of punishment. You should be afraid of punishment if you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian, there's no fear of punishment. There's freedom in Christ. There's life in Jesus. There's hope. And so we come to him, and holiness then isn't a mere obligation. It's an opportunity, an opportunity to live a life that we've been created for and flourish in him. So Jesus is, is writing about here. That's why he says Christ followers should avoid anger, be quick to reconcile, avoid lust. Not because he's trying to give us an impossible to-do list, because he's saying here's a path to a better life. It's like the person who said to me once, they don't deserve to be forgiven. I said, but you know what? Forgiveness isn't for them, it's for you. Because when I hold on to unforgiveness, it, it typically doesn't hurt people I'm not forgiving. They don't even know I'm upset with them half the time. It's hurting me. Anyone been there? Oh God, get rid of the root of bitterness. Help me get rid of that. Help me walk in the freedom that you have for me in Jesus. Father God, help me, help me live in a way where my mind is pure. Simply because I, I don't want to disrespect those around me, but I also I want to live the life that you have in store for me. I want to live that walk that Jesus has for me. See, people judge the obvious crimes. God knows the heart, so we should just be honest with him. Again, Old Testament verse, I've already quoted Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to a man that in the end leads to death. Well, there's a way that Jesus has set up that leads to life. Receiving him as Lord and Savior. Sin promises the world, but in the end corrupts our soul. And so what's the point? What Stott, once again, I found him very helpful as I was studying this passage. Stott, he challenges us with these words. Listen to his words. He says, we have to decide. There's this decision to be made. We have to decide quite simply whether to live for this world or the next, whether to follow the crowd or, or Jesus Christ, whether to live for self or for our Savior. I, I just... I just got to share with you the way to life is living for Jesus. The way to life is, 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 is to choose his path and to walk in it. And anyone who's told you that this is a book that, that leads to, to depression and you know, sort of the inner destruction, they haven't looked at it right. Holiness isn't an obligation as much as it's an opportunity to live the life that God's always had for you. All of us know when we've tried to do life our own way, it doesn't work out for us. God's way will. It may not be easy, but by his power, we will make it through. And in the end, I already read, killer alert, we're victorious. Focus on the victory. Focus on the victory. Whatever you're dealing with this morning, focus on the victory. God has it for you. He has it for you. And if you've yet to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, that's your first step. Begin that walk. And wherever you find yourself, take the next step with him. Let's pray.
Father God, thank you so much for inspiring Matthew to, to, to put this account in his gospel. I find uh, the Sermon on the Mount personally challenging and encouraging. It's motivating. There's certainly some holy ouch moments. But in the end, I, I realize that you've placed these words here because your words have life. You didn't place them here so that anyone would leave this morning feeling defeated or that they don't measure up. You put these words here that all of us could leave here, whether we're talking about here being the Canandaigua campus or online campus or Hopewell campus, leaving this time together, knowing that you have victory for us, that there is a better way. We don't want to become enveloped with unrighteous anger. We, we don't want to not be reconciled to one another. We don't want to allow ourselves to to misuse attractiveness and, and, and to use it in a way that's devastating instead of just disadmiring the fact that you, God, create beauty. We want to deal with sin seriously because it, it can separate us from you if we've yet to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And even as followers of yours, it can corrupt our soul. So God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room this morning. This is this teaching can be received either with great difficulty or, or with great freedom. And I pray, Lord God, we would receive it with the intent, which is freedom in you. That, Lord God, if we've yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, that, that even here and now, that we would simply say, Lord, thank you for dying for my sins, being resurrected for my salvation. I want to be in that relationship with you. Be Lord and Savior of my life. And for those of us who have made that decision, God, would you just take us on that next step you have for this amazing journey? you've already set up for us in you. Help us, help us, Lord God, become the people you've created us to be in Christ Jesus. Thank you that as a believer, the righteousness of Christ surrounds us. We're, we're dressed in his righteousness. But Lord God, may we not just be positionally righteous, may we live rightly, Lord God, that, that the words of our mouth, the actions of our life would point people to you. And Lord, when we stumble, if we fall, Lord, I pray that we keep our eyes on the victory, getting back up, knowing that when everything's said and done, the work you began in us will come to completion. And we won't struggle any longer. Thank you for what you've done, for what you're doing, for not just saying you loved us, but demonstrating it each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.